Young fascist militant Francesco Bianco gets on his green Vespone with a new 7.65 caliber pistol that he can't even cock. Someone's given it to him, and he wants to learn to shoot, so he's on his way to the field outside of Rome. On the street, a comrade of his cuts him off and says, Hey, I'm going to court. You should come with me. Bianco responds that he's armed, and he can't go. His comrade says, What the fuck? I'm armed too. Just keep the guns in the back of the bike. Bianco doesn't, though. He goes to the trial strapped with his new handgun, crossing the entire courthouse before getting to the court passing a few leftists on the way. Their eyes meet like something out of a western, and they confront each other, agreeing to take their fight outside. The group leaves the courthouse, and the fascists try to escape, but they turn down the wrong road and end up in a dead end. Meanwhile, the leftists have gathered a small platoon of 20 militants and are ready to fight. Bianco takes out his new gun. He has a little other option the one he has difficulty even pulling down the hammer. The leftists duck behind a car, and he manages with all the adrenaline pumping in his system to pull off a shot. He and his friend run as fast as they can, with his friend stashing his own gun in a flower vase. They find themselves suddenly smack in front of a team of carabinieri. The commander, Major Varisco, punches the other fascist in the throat, demanding to know where he hid his gun. In the end, Both would end up in juvenile detention for a few months. It was just one of the innumerable confrontations in the urban battlegrounds of Rome during 1977. Random, spontaneous events dispersed throughout the country, terrorizing the citizens as rival political groups of people often no older than 16 or 17 years old took aim at one another in a new era of extreme violence. Bianco was part of a clique of young fascists who thought of themselves as a kind of warrior aristocracy whose fight was not only against the left, but the old guard of the fascist party and even the state itself. They were called the Black Autonomy, and despite the fact that they fought with the ubiquitously left-wing autonomisti on a daily basis, they really liked that label. Loud, raucous, and mostly rich, The third positionists, national revolutionaries, and radical rightists who swarmed to the fascist ranks in the late 1970s had a new look, a new style, and a new distrust for the old guard of the so-called neo-fascists. While some, like Paolo Signorelli's Costruamo la Azione, hoped to recuperate the idea of fascism and make it actionable, others, like Terza Posizione, wanted to overcome the label to reinvent the political drama of a heroic era in an effort its leaders would ultimately admit was always only fascism at its most essential. They raised slogans like, the people don't vote, they fight, and developed in a kind of liminal threshold between the official fascist party, Movimento Sociale Italiano, and clandestine fascist terror. Hi again, how's it going? I'm your host, Alexander Reed Ross, and welcome to the Years of Lead Pod. So, we've gone over the big events that characterized the bulk of 1977, from the feminist movement's pivotal drive to legalize abortion, to the big eruption of the student movement early in the year, and the expulsion of the communist trade union leader Luciano Lama from the University of Rome. And from there, the massive riots that swept through the country after the police killing of Pier Francesco Lorusso in Bologna, known as the Days of March. During March 1977, when Bianco ended up shooting at a group of leftists in the streets two blocks from the courthouse in the middle of Rome, the whole country was in deep distress, and Rome was reeling from nightly riots in some areas. On March 12th, during the heart of the rebellion after the killing of Lo Russo, a block of autonomisti marched on the MSE headquarters in Prati district at Piazza Risorgimento, with a garrison of around 10 people the small Prati section was severely outnumbered and came under heavy fire from the autonomists. A flying squad of cops drew up to the scene, stopped their car, got out and took up prone positions behind their vehicle, fighting at the armed, firing at the armed autonomisti. During the firefight, the young Messini, defended in their headquarters by the police guns, started performing Roman salutes to antagonize the left side. Later that month, Bruno Giudici and his son Enzo a militant member of the youth front of the MSE, are eating pizza in the Talenti district of Rome. Suddenly, a dozen men burst in and descend on Enzo, 
Bruno tries to protect his son and catches a number of blows himself. The two end up returning home, but Bruno is not doing well. He gets sick in the evening and passes away. A couple of months later, as riots once again sweep the country after the police shooting of feminist activist Georgiana Masi, a Vespa carrying two young men pulls up to the Balduina section of the MSE as its leader Enrico Tiano is leaving. The person on the back of the scooter raises a 22 caliber pistol and fires off a shot into Tiano's chest. The Vespa speeds away. Into the more rebellious fashion at the time, Tiano wore a beard so that when the news flashed his photo during the evening show, another fascist watching thought to herself, they've caught one of their own, it's good for them. At a restaurant a couple of months after that, near the church San Paolo alla Regola, a man sits down for a meal with his friend Domenico Velluto, an agent of the Carabinieri charged with the killing of left-wing autonomous Mario Salvi the previous year. An armed man enters the restaurant and puts a bullet in his head, mistaking him for Agent Veluto, and then takes flight. This is sort of the way that things went during that chaotic year. Through riots, university occupations, and street fights, the left and right exchanged killings and injuries in a vendetta spiral in which both sides increasingly frayed into disunited and self-destructive fractions. The heady days of 1973 during which the armed struggle and workers' movements seemed united on the left in a common purpose with the budding social movements through which the first autonomous organizations were emerging, seemed a thing of the past. The fascist bombings of 1974, along with the brutal days of April the following year, and the strong movement of the Communist Party towards counterterrorism and the historic compromise, had decisively transformed the tenor of the Italian extra-parliamentary left. If you listen to last week's episode featuring the interview with Kevin Van Meter, the rest is going to be up soon on Patreon for subscribers. Plug, plug. It's there for if you want to contribute, whatever you can contribute. You'll recall that the Italian left had developed as part of transnational shifts in the labor movement. The workers had emerged in the 50s and 60s with a strategy to get close to the workers and understand their lived conditions, and the new left had emerged in Italy from those ideas. Things were decidedly different by the mid-1970s. Inflation, austerity, layoffs, housing crisis, unemployment, all these things are really chipping away at the working class, such that a lot of workers simply wanted to keep their job and drifted away from revolutionary dreams, while others became more polarized towards simplified militaristic structures like the Red Brigades or Prima Linea. Initiated from radical groups in medium or small factories, students, and precarious workers, the area of autonomia was calling for the refusal of work and appealing to youth counterculture and alternative lifestyles in ways that some argued not only refused to understand workers, but detracted from their organizing. Whereas before, the claim of splitting the left was typically lobbed by communists against socialists, now it was used by those who still respected the centrality of the worker against others being included in the movement, from women to gays to the youth and so on. Meanwhile, the far right was also going through major transformations. As discussed in the earlier episode on Rauti's return, with the bombs of 1974, the strategy of tension had shown itself to be effectively exhausted. What really set the mood for the new moment were the killings of Sergio Romelli and Mikas Montakis by left-wing militants. After years of way outpacing their left-wing rivals in terms of violence and brutality, and finally experiencing a new wave of reprisals that would grow with each passing year, the fascist movement was beginning to rethink its own approach. Leader of the paramilitary organization Ordine Nuovo, fascist Pino Rauti, re-entered the fascist party Movimento Sociale Italiano, or MSE, in 1969, after his associate Giorgio Almirante was elected to its head. Initially gaining a foothold of influence in Milan, by the mid-1970s, Rauti's extreme right-wing ideas began to spread among fascist youth in Rome. Influenced by occultist Giulio Evola, Rauti called for an elite caste of warrior priests bent on removing themselves from society in order to rule over it violently. The violent elitism of Rauti's ideology brought him stature among the high school contingents of the MSE who fought against the left in between classes and after school. In a strange twist, 
the ideas of what some see as the left wing of the fascist movement, arguing for socialization of businesses and radical collectivist ideas of nationalist social life, started to fuse with the new youth groups attracted to Raúl's ideology. In particular, another Ordine Nuovo veteran, Paolo Signorelli, creates a faction within the MSE called the Lotta Popolare, or the Popular Struggle, in order to oppose the leadership's double-breasted suit brand of fascism. So Signorelli and Rauti become the leading ideological figures of the old guard fostering a new breed of fascism among the youth, with the MSE's devastating loss in the June 1976 elections, it seemed that the leadership's efforts to forge a kind of right-wing alliance between all factions of the nationalist right were ultimately discredited, and that brought about a new understanding of the way forward. For Rauti and his followers in particular, borrow from the left, if only temporarily, because in the most radical sense, they were more likely to gain disaffected communists than they were disaffected centrists. And 1977 was a really prime year for this sort of adventure. 77 had emerged as a year of iconoclasm, challenging left-wing hierarchies in particular by taking the fight to the unions with the expulsion of Luciano Lama, but also the Communist Party's inner sanctum, the city of Bologna, which was in the heartland of communist power at the time. The extra-parliamentary left was mounting increasingly aggressive campaigns against communist institutions, and as the fight grew bloodier, the animus against communism started to grow as well. Marxism was no longer the unquestioned ideology of the far left, as different council communist, insurrectionary, utopian, and anarchist ideas started to grow among the autonomists. Fascists took credit for this and sought to exploit it, with the MSE youth leader of the Fronte Universitario Azione Nazionale in Via Siena boasting, 77 was the offspring of our idea. And it's from this general tendency that we see the emergence of two organizations. Costruamo l'Azione, mostly just as a publication run by Paolo Signorelli, and Lotta Studentesca a younger organization based in Roman high schools that would court a huge amount of violence over time. Though these groups would grow with importance in 1978-1979, addressing their early development in 1977 helps illustrate the ideas that were emerging at the time, and in particular, the advanced efforts by the far right to draw in the left and create a populist anti-systemic movement that really developed in 1977 and created the platform for the worst years of political terror. So, what did these new ideologies of the fascist scene believe, think, want, and do? Let's start with costruamo la azione, which means let's build action. The idea for Costruamo la Azione comes from Paolo Signorelli and his right-hand man Sergio Calore in May 1977 following the arrest of the fascist assassin who murdered the magistrate Vittorio Accorsio. Signorelli had criticized the assassin, whose name was Pierluigi Concutelli, and who died earlier this year, for being a kind of unaccountable maverick. Although it appears that he still offered Concutelli support while the latter was in Rome, to assassinate Accorsio. So Signorelli and Calore create this journal, Costruiamo la Azione, mostly out of Rome, in order to inspire his new young supporters toward more direct action and less party organizational talk. Another of its contributors, criminologist Aldo Semorari, will become important in later episodes, but sufficient to say here that Signorelli was developing a fairly influential clique. This was the faction that came out of Lotta Popolare in the MSE, so they were mostly interested in a kind of radical fascism that called for socialization of business and then some. They were no longer stuck in an old conformist bureaucratic mindset. They wanted to take a step forward in terms of a nationalist platform. Their immediate reference was Giorgio Franco Freda the head of the Padua section of the Ordine Nuovo, who was at the time still on trial for orchestrating the Piazza Fontana bombing of 1969, in which 17 people were killed. Freda had authored a book called The Disintegrazione del Sistema, or The Disintegration of the System, which called for a populist left-right alliance in order to destroy liberal democracy and the kind of society that produced it and was reproduced by it. 
That book, or really a pamphlet, was later distributed by the organization Lota di Popolo, from which Lota Popolare appears to have derived its name. In Signorelli's words to Nicola Rao, quote, The first issue of Costruamo l'Azione took note of the death of ideologies, proposed a united front on the extreme left, and openly declared itself anti-imperialist and anti-system. Sure, some indications, such as the alliance with the extreme left, were borrowed from Freda's speeches, but ours, compared to Freda's, was a less doctrinaire language, absolutely extraneous to Evola's suggestions, more sparse, even violent. The idea of costruiamo l'azione is, quote, to create a disorganized structure through the newspaper which should have served as a vehicle for coagulating groups of people who would then have had to remain independent from each other and each in turn to work on its behalf. Throughout the spring of 1977 and into summer, Costruiamo la Azione becomes associated with the so-called Black Autonomy, little affinity groups of fascist gangs basically, often quite young, who join together for a quick action, then disband or regroup with different components for new actions. This would be the beginning of what Giorgio Cingulani calls the archipelago strategy, quote, according to which individual militants or the various groups are no longer linked top-down, but maintain their own identity and freedom of action by joining together only in a political function. The new movement becomes a, quote, multifaceted circuit between the political and military moments, through a deliberate fragmentation of groups, initiatives, and ideological components, radically antithetical to that of the old neo-fascist. So one of the first things Costruiamo la Azione wants to do is define themselves independently of Rauti's leadership. Signorelli had gone through the Ordine Nuovo experience along with Rauti and Freda, and now he wanted to stand out from the rest based on his distance from Evola. Note also how he underlines the absence of dense theory. Costruiamo l'azione wanted to inspire actions, not words, and violence, not mediation. Signorelli also boasts of the development of a fascist form of anti-imperialism, stating, quote, Our anti-imperialism was also manifested in foreign policy. We supported both Irish Catholics and the Iranian mullahs, who were fighting against the Shah at the time. I've gone back in other episodes to show how Mussolini's own positions would have lined up against those of the so-called left fascists, but it's very interesting to note here, absent that deeper dive, which I think you can find in the third episode on Ordine Nuovo, that the question of imperialism in fascist politics is always contentious. Mussolini boasts of being an imperialist and especially of supporting a new imperium, and vaunted the Roman Empire's leaders, first Caesar and then Augustus, once he realized what had actually happened to Caesar. But the fascists of the 1920s also loudly denounced the empires of other countries, particularly England, and this was seized upon by the geopolitical ambitions of post-war national Bolsheviks to try to imagine a new map of Europe. In particular, Belgian fascist Jean-François Thiria argued that virtuous civilizational expansion of empire would belong largely to land powers, while sea powers like England could only expand based on a form of liberal markets understood as the real imperialism. Now, I'm not sure how well this passed in Italy, historically more or less a sea power, but that's for them to work out, I suppose. It's getting into the weeds, I guess. But it's important because Franco Freda and Lota di Popolo's first reference points were Jean-François Thierry and his European network, Young Europe. So the anti-imperialist ideas promoted by Freda had a longer history, going back to the interwar fascists by way of Thierry Going back to Iran, Costruiamo la Azione described the Islamist movement in the following terms. Quote, the strength and originality of this revolution is that it is perfectly clear what one wants to destroy and what to replace it with. People recognize themselves in their religious figures. They're not so ancient. Want to be guided according to the dictates of their race and their tradition. So, like Lota di Popolo and its leading light, 
Claudio Muti, Costruiamo la azione really supported militant Islam in Iran on a racist and traditionalist basis. This is somewhat interesting due to the fact that, prior to Mussolini, the Italian far-right had been completely Catholic, but he had brought in some anti-clerical sentiments, despite having capitulated to Catholic doctrine on gaining his nationalist bona fides. These new fascists were far less interested in Catholicism and far more interested in uniting a geopolitical counter-hegemonic bloc against the liberal West. As regards Muammar Gaddafi, Costruiamo l'azione held an even more exuberant esteem. The paper ranted, quote, Libyan socialism is the most doctrinally distant from the Western homonymous. First of all, the primacy of a people and its culture is on the fundamental level a religious primacy in an eminently different sense from the practice of mass cults. Even the figure of Gaddafi is not that of a dictator or a popular leader. He assumes the connotations of the leader who derives his right from the depersonalization of a function to which he is called, but which always has the people as its center. Gaddafi is in part the conscience made matter of the centuries-old Arab struggle to be a people and a nation. Gaddafi conceived this traditional and Bedouin socialism of brothers, and as brothers, we who fight to free our land turn to him. Only with the struggle of the peoples can liberation from the slavery of capital be achieved, not with new alliances, not with capitalisms, with a different face. So let's break that down a little bit. Firstly, they're commending Arabs in Libya for a religious unity in a sense that departs from a mass cult, which they want to identify with. Secondly, they say that Gaddafi is a kind of depersonalized leader figure, an ideal type in a sense removed from his selfhood, and on that note, they insist that Gaddafi literally becomes the incarnation of a pan-Arab national struggle. For this, and for the nationalist struggle against capitalism that they impute to Gaddafi, they commend him as a brother. Of course, they were either nascent or gleefully accepting of Gaddafi's open-air slave markets, his 1972 ban on gatherings based around any form of political ideology in opposition to his own, and the death penalty for those who participated in such groups, not to mention extrajudicial executions against what he called stray dogs, his term for political opponents. Gaddafi further punished people with life sentences for criticizing the government, not to mention the general and complete incompetence and corruption of his government. Interestingly, Costruiamo l'azione also supported anti-Zionism, something similarly inherited from Franco Freda, who launched the first anti-Zionist protest in Italian history during the late 1960s. Quote, from the military point of view, the aid granted by Libya to the cause for the liberation of Palestine is commendable. This country could constitute an aggregator for the whole Arab national movement and to offer it the necessary power in the fight against Israel. So here, Israel as a Jewish state was absolutely to be opposed by all measures available. Hence, Costruiamo la Azione supported a fiercely anti-Semitic alliance against Israel and NATO in the name of pan-Arab nationalism, which is, when you examine the geopolitics of Nazi Germany and fascist Italy up to 1945, far closer to the original score. As well as that, they put up an ardent defense of Native American struggles against the U.S. government, seizing any opportunity to oppose what they called Yankee oppression. One thing that stands out in Costruiamo la Azione's fascist bloviating, though, is its vaunting of ultranationalism under the banner of people's struggles. The most vital thing for Signorelli was populism, something certainly reflected in Freire's theories as well. But what characterized the experience of Costruiamo la Azione, Signorelli says, was a rediscovery of the people, seen by us as the only political referent to refer to. We declared the concept of the nation obsolete, which, among other things, was of Jacobin origin, and we supported the rediscovery of ethnic groups and small homelands, prefiguring also a federalist project. So this all seems 
you know, like pettifogging intellectualism or whatever, but it's very important for two main reasons. Firstly, the destruction of the nation-state as a modern creation brought about through the Jacobin Revolution helps them make the argument that the populist political orientation could be at the same time almost an anarchist endeavor and a supremely imperial one. So today, this type of analysis is imbued within the Duganist ideation of the civilization state. And I should note here that Dugan was a kind of protege of Thierryard, and that former intellectual leader of Lotta di Popolo at this time, Claudio Muti, remains one of Dugan's closest Italian associates. So, what we're seeing with the formulation of the populist civilization state in reference to a larger liberal geopolitics is one of the theoretical innovations of the so-called New Right of the 1970s in Italy, which becomes a cornerstone of the more recent populist radical right. But Signorelli's ideation takes one further turn. Quote, Our operating model was the organic communities of the people to replace the Western capital model. On this point, our starting point was the writings of Tonis, the scholar who was the first to oppose the community to society, giving a very relevant explanation. So here, in reference to Tonis, Signorelli is supporting this old parsing out of the Gemeinschaft versus the Gesellschaft, which is often translated as the community versus the society. What he comes to understand in 1977 as the basis of fascist political life, then, is a communitarian existence. Again, this notion of the organic community life really represented something quite different from the Avila-inspired elitism so dogmatically promoted by Pino Rauti and his followers. And as for Pino Rauti himself, Costruiamo la Azione did not hesitate to take the old man of the fascist vanguard to task. Let's talk about the MSC misunderstanding which has given way, with its revolutionary mask and its reactionary face, to bring down and vainly disperse generations of men and boys, and now continues with Rauti to delude the simple-minded that he is an alternative and anti-system force. Then, in Parliament, he votes for the Legge Reale. Every day, he sends young people into jeopardy to steal those 30 pieces of public funding. Every day, he denounces its adherence to the police in order to save the dirty lives of its ruling class. And then, he accuses authentic revolutionaries of adventuring and informing. Brutal takedown. So even if Signorelli represented an important prong of the fascist youth culture that rallied around Rauti for his militancy and the sense of feeling special and elite, he was also pushing a line quite opposed to and even offensive towards Rauti. To give you an idea of what this looked like in practice, a particularly pungent line from Costruiamo la Azione reads, quote, Against hegemonism, sectarianism, dogmatism, sophistry, the unity of the revolutionary area must assert itself. Only unity will make us reject and unmask provocations and diversions. In unity, we can work out the winning strategy. Not sure what Rauti had to say about unity after that criticism. Discussing problems like the housing crisis and unemployment, Costruiamo la Azione regularly pitched itself to the left, calling on autonomists, often using the vulgar language of the streets, to abandon the anti-fascism of the democratic state and embrace a general populist revolt against centrism. They also disseminated so-called order sheets, or folli de ordine, which dispensed advice on militant activities like the development of alibis, stating, quote, Reduce your role to a minimum. Above all, don't try to glorify yourself. You would only earn the contempt of your comrades and that of your adversary. Hide the important facts, dwell on past stories, on dead or out-of-danger comrades, but never talk about the future. Finally, be perfectly practiced in the technique of defense against interrogation. So, that's the tendency of Costruiamo la Azione in brief, a rowdy faction of left-wing fascism that more or less resembles the geopolitical configuration and in certain respects ideology of Russian state media today, at least on RT, Sputnik, and so on. The other major prong of the new 
youth thrust of the fascist movement was a group that I mentioned in a prior episode on Rauti called Lota Studentesca, which at the end of 1977 would rebrand itself Terza Posizione. The founders of Lota Studentesca came from Ordine Nuovo, Fronte Studentesco, and Avanguardia Nazionale, three young men named Roberto Fiore, Gabriele Adinolfi, and Giuseppe Dmitri, respectively. Now, a bit about these characters' backgrounds. They're mostly young, and as members of the second-generation post-war fascists, they could distance themselves from the engagement with secret services and strategy of tension, yet they still admired the older generation considerably, and especially the Rautian current. They saw themselves almost exclusively as being superheroes, fighting a dangerous struggle against a much more powerful enemy. Arinolfi sorted the brains of the operation, and states, quote, In 1968, I was 14 and was fascinated by the students' revolt. However, I was horrified by Marxist language and by the Soviet solution. Hence, I tried to find an innovative position, revolutionary yet anti-Marxist. And this was how I came to join what we can call fascism and neo-fascism, even though they're not the same thing. Let us call it the radical right. I started from the fact that I wanted a generational change. I wanted something innovative, youthful. I wanted a chance to be free from hypocrisy and to be able to decide one's own destiny, and I saw that on the left there was a huge deceit as they talked of revolution but practiced a form of international servility. Hence, I elaborated this position, that is to say, I wanted to show myself and the others that I was more revolutionary than they were. So, Adinolfi was the oldest of three, Adinolfi was the oldest of the three in 1976, at 22 years old. His pal, Roberto Fiore, was the youngest, at just 18 years old, in 1977, but also taller and stronger than Adinolfi, coming out of the Ordine Nuovo and thus imbued with a sensibility of violence. But probably the most violent of the trio was Giuseppe Dimitri. Born in Rome in 1956, Dimitri joined avant-garde nazionale in 1971 at the age of 15, and was reared in that extremely intense milieu tied to the bar Fungi in the Ur district. By 1976, he was 20 years old and had a record of fighting in the universities of Rome. One of the early recruits to Lotta Studentesca, Marcello de Angelis, a 17-year-old kid from the wealthy Parioli district, signed up in 1977. He later said, quote, From a philosophical point of view, our main contact was undoubtedly Freda with his disintegration of the system. Lota Studentesca was born as an explicitly Fredian group. Its leaders saw Freda several times to ask him for advice, and I was already a Frediano before joining it. Indeed, one of the reasons for my participation in Lota Studentesca was precisely this. Freire's libretto completely changed my life from a political point of view. It was a text of great disruption in the environment, and I considered it fundamental. So, here you can see that Lota Studentesca and Costruiamo la Azione weren't that different insofar as they both followed with the Freirean ideology. And, as you can imagine, their approach to foreign policy was pretty much in line with that. Quote, One of my reasons for my break with the MSE was the Palestinian question, De Angelis says. I had always been pro-Arab, while the MSE was strongly aligned with Israeli and Western positions. So you can kind of see how the left wing of the fascist movement drew recruits from the MSE using these tempting politics of radicalism that they could use against the conservatives of the party and also against their leftist combatants. It's useful to quote his description of his days with Lota Studentesca at length. Quote, The militants were provided with two books by Evola, Guidelines and The Doctrine, Air of Struggle and Victory. Avila was followed, more than for his political indications, which appeared to us of rear guard, above all for the inner teachings, adherence to a certain lifestyle, impersonal, detached, always present to oneself, in short, what we called the warrior mystic. Our symbol became the so-called rune of the warrior, which is then a knot of runes composed of sowulo, the rune of victory, and fire, 
and Isa, the rune of ice. This knot of runes is generated from a verse in Snorri's Edda, in which there's an invocation, May I be the warrior of ice and fire. The warrior rune, like almost all runes, was also adopted by the Waffen SS and became the symbol of the Das Reich armored division. From a political point of view, we were very close to the positions of Lota di Popolo and to those of the Argentine Peronists of the Tercera Posición, from which we borrowed our name. Our slogans were, neither right nor left, third position, or neither red front nor reaction, third position. We really liked the Montoneros, who fought against the Argentine military regime from Peronist, not Marxist, positions. We liked Gaddafi. We were rooting for the Iranian Islamic Revolution, for that Sandinista in Nicaragua. Our idol was Eden Pastora, leader of the Tercerist current, then set aside by the Marxist-Leninists. So, let's go through some of these references again. Firstly, so, let's go through some of these references. Firstly, the Peronists. Juan Perón in Argentina was a dictator who, pushed, who seized power out of a military coup in 1943 and then gained popularity through public works and charitable enterprises while bringing the workers' movement fully under the control of the state. Peronism, as it became known, was a way of joining left and right. And obviously, Perón had a lot of fascist sympathies, hid Nazi war criminals, and so forth. When he was deposed by another coup in 1955, he moved to Madrid in exile and hobnobbed with all sorts of fascists, including plotters of the Italian strategy of tension and, you guessed it, Jean-François Thierry. In the 1970s, a paramilitary force called the Montoneros emerged to fight for Perón's return to Argentina, setting off bombs and assassinating high-level targets. To understand Lota Studentesca's ideology, it helps to look at what would later come out through their writings after rebranding as Terza Posizione. I already went over Gaddafi and Iranian Islamic Revolution. Terza Posizione's positions here weren't particularly different from Costruiamo la Azione. Both groups championed the Palestinian struggle as a point of anti-Semitic militant unity. Rejecting the efforts at peace in the Middle East led by Egyptian President Anwar Sadat, who took over from the nationalist strongman Gamal Nasser in 1970, Teresa Posizione would note, quote, Like the Palestinian people, Arab unity has suffered serious damage from the actions of Sadat. Nasser's unworthy successor and accomplice of Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin, who was the mastermind of the Deir Yassin massacre. The Arab unity that has been desired and lacked for decades is easily comparable to the no less desired European unity. Iraq, in open contrast with the often narrow-mindedness of Syria, represents together with Libya and the Palestinian vanguards the most radical wing of the alignment opposed to the capitulationist policy. Interesting here is the opposition to Begin on the basis of the Dar Yassin massacre, which took place in 1948 and was carried out by Begin's fascist-inspired paramilitary group Irgun. So the line of argument Teresa Posizione takes in support for Iraq and Libya against the peace efforts of Egypt and Israel on the basis of past human rights violations committed by the far-right Israeli forces during the 1948 civil war in mandatory Palestine seems to pit them against one group within the far right. With this argument, Teresa Posizione takes up the banner of a pan-Arab nationalist struggle in opposition to more moderate Arab leaders, among whom they incredibly include dictator Hafiz al-Assad of Syria, and posits that this pan-Arab model should be adapted into a pan-European model of anti-liberal struggle. Again, we're seeing developing here a similar line as Costruiamo l'Azione and something very much in lockstep with the ideas of Franco Freda, whose defense of a kind of European popular liberation movement had reference points as far back as the nationalist components of the Algerian independence movement during the early 1960s. The reality at the time 
was also that the new left had begun turning toward pro-Palestine politics in the early 1970s as well. So in that sense, the Freudian political position was quite prescient of a revolutionary confluence between left and right. Also, like Costruiamo la Azione, in their newspaper Terza Posizione, this group also lionized the Montenero struggle against the military dictatorship of Jorge Rafael Videla, who overthrew Perón's wife, Isabel, in 1976. Quote, the struggle waged by the Montenero movement, political branch of the guerrilla organization, and the massive adhesion of Argentine workers have ensured that the very harsh repression did not create a vacuum around the Monteneros, on the contrary, creating all the prerequisites for isolating the coup junta, Teresa Posizione would insist. Videla is now short of breath, despite the massive aid, above all economic, received from abroad and in particular from the United States of America, the coup plotters acted with difficulty. The people are against them and they know it. Only high finance and the reaction continue to support it. But it is now clear that there are no longer many who believe in the thaumaturgical powers of the executioner. As for the Sandinistas, they say that they supported Eden Pastora, who was part of the tercerist current of the Ortega brothers and sort of the original Sandinista. Pastora catapulted to international fame when he took a bunch of high-profile people hostage for $500,000 in 1978 and ended up escaping to Cuba for a while. He didn't mesh too well with the Marxist-Leninists, though, and ultimately founded his own party, but was always left-wing and not a fascist. Anyway, you can sort of imagine the members of Lotto Studentesca trying to have these debates with leftist kids, saying things like, oh, we support anti-imperialism too, but, not, but no Arab anti-imperialist force is really anti-nationalist, so if you support anti-imperialism in the Middle East, you have to support nationalist forces there, and if you do it there, you, why don't you do it here, where we've been occupied by NATO? For that matter, in reference to Nicaragua, you could imagine them saying, Oh, you support the Sandinistas, huh? Do you even know who Eden Pastora is? Because now the so-called Sandinistas won't even touch him. More or less, this is always a kind of one-upsmanship. It's saying they're more revolutionary than the left-wing revolutionaries and trying to push the left further and further down a rabbit hole. Basically, they can use those kinds of issues as leverage to relate to leftists to try to bring them over to the fascist side, and there's more to it than that. The Angelis continues, quote, We were also against Pinochet's Chile, given that our line was against all military dictatorships, considered to be emanations of the United States. Subsequently, we rethought and reevaluated the figure of Pinochet. So, in a lot of cases, with reference to anti-imperialist politics, they simply took an anti-NATO position on pretty much everything, even when the dictator, let's say Pinochet or Videla, came from Somoza, came from pro-fascist positions. Their loyalty wasn't always to the right, but to a certain transnational axis of the right that included left-wingers. Again, if this sounds crazy but familiar, it's all really foundational for the development of the career of Alexander Dugin and his commitment to the so-called multipolar world. In fact, Roberto Fiore, one of Lotta Studentesco's founders, would end up being very, very close to the Russian state. Even more revealing of this approximation is Teresa Posizione's strong support for localism. Their idea was to support all breakaway movements oriented around ethnicity in order to weaken modern nation-states and ultimately eclipse them with a large-scale empire that was federated among these smaller states. Quote, The Basque, the Irish of the IRA, the Ustasha, often resoundingly call their reality of anti-imperialist struggle, as well as the Breton, the Corsicans, the Estonians, the Lithuanians, the Catalan, both in Tyrol and the Val d'Aosta, in Sardinia and in Sicily, there is, even if it lacks a precise underlying political conscience, the will 
of the populations not to allow themselves to be engulfed by the bourgeois monster. By promoting small separatist struggles around the world as anti-bourgeois, when, in fact, most nationalist struggles have pretty strong bourgeois components, particularly if you look at the Catalonian one, Teresa Posizione could claim a revolutionary position, generate some sympathies from left-wingers, and establish a communitarian ethos central to Volkish ideas without abandoning their own assumption of eliteness and greatness. Their line is summed up in their purported, quote, will to fight alongside all the national liberation movements that want to free themselves from Russian-American imperialism and international Zionism. And here, they would even go as far as to condemn the Risorgimento that united Italy in the 19th century, insisting that the Savoy dynasty based in Piedmont that provided the centrifuge of unification had constructed an unequal liberal Italian state. So, they're not exactly Italian patriots. And when Terza Posizione forms at the turn of 1978, it reaches a big debate between those who still asserted the ideas of socialization that characterized the earlier left wing of the fascist movement on one hand, and the more radical sort of national communism or national Bolshevism promoted by Freda. Terza Posizione takes Freda's position and ultimately adopts that old countercultural expression, don't trust anyone over 30, restricting their group to young people. They really genuinely were suspicious of the old right, thinking of them as all in the services of spy agencies and so on. They say that they didn't actually like coup plotters and those who carried out massacres, seeing themselves as genuine national revolutionaries. But at the same time, their attachment to Freda, one of the most serious alleged perpetrators of massacre and the strategy of tension, sort of belies that notion. What's interesting about Lota Studentesca, later Terza Posizione, is that they didn't try to abandon Rauti and Evola. De Angelis explains, quote, Were Evola's positions and those of the left irreconcilable? I would not say that. Indeed, although they were apparently contradictory, they were perfectly reconcilable and reconciled. I would say naturally a realistic, pragmatic attitude very sensitive to social and popular issues in political practice and a very mystical, spiritual, traditional, and Spartan lifestyle from an internal point of view were, in my opinion, the right formula. This, for me, was true fascism. So here we can see how Lotta Studentesca is all about the attitude and the vibe of Evola without really bothering with his actual teachings, whereas Signorelli's group was older, wiser, and had a much firmer grasp on the contradictions between Evola and what Freda was preaching, even if Freda himself elided those distinctions. But the interesting thing here is how De Angelis has to insist he's found the true fascism. This is something Rauti also does when he's younger, because the Evolians are constantly told by the left wing of the fascist movement that they're not really fascists. They're more like monarchists or individualists, but they aren't really interested in the state and the nation as such. To this, people like Rauti and De Angelis would ultimately insist that they understood fascism all the more deeply. Yet in 1977 and 1978, the guys of Lotta Studentesca, later Terza Posizione, often shied away from calling themselves fascists, resting on national revolutionary as a title that they could abide by. They wanted to distance themselves from the previous generation that had become so despised, and to develop new strategies and tactics based on a unique synthesis. What if we still felt like fascists? The question was the subject of debate within the movement. Eventually, we concluded that we were no longer fascists, but today, after so many years, looking back on it, I think we were wrong. In my opinion, we weren't neo-fascists, but we perfectly embodied the essence of fascism. However, at the time, we thought we had broken with fascism and were other. So, the Lota Studentesca guys are more clearly distinguished from the old guard, perhaps, than Costruiamo la Azione guys. They dress more casually, have long hair and piercings, call one another comrade and even brother, and instead of the Roman salute, they greet each other with a fist on the heart, which they identified as the Praetorian greeting. 
When they held public manifestations, they would do what looked like a Roman salute, but only with three fingers, calling it the trigheil. Symbolic for them of the third position, it was sort of similar to the autonomisti, who would raise their hand with three fingers in the shape of a gun. Once again, drawing comparisons in the media. Also, Lota Studentesca brought in young girls, some as young as 14 years old, through their high school formations. This was sort of controversial, even within the group itself, but it made them distinct. One of the girls of the organization wrote in her diary, Nani and the other young people of Lota Studentesca strike me immediately. Unlike the MSE, who poses tough guys, who act arrogant, who have the classic Pariolini look, they're more lighthearted and easygoing. Even in the look, they're less rigid and freer. But at the same time, they have a strict and Spartan lifestyle. This mix attracts me. So, aside from attracting 14-year-old girls, with regards to autonomia, De Angelis says there were constant clashes between the two sides. But Lota Studentesca's entire ideology was clearly shaped to approach leftists and engage them in dialogue in order to try to win them over. Quote, Of course, on our part, there was a will to open dialogue with them. But above all, we were envious of the fact that they brought 100,000 people in the square, and we, they brought 100,000 people into the piazza, and we, 500, or at most 1,000, he would explain. In terms of organizational structure, Lota Studentesca was developed much more as a militant organization than Costruiamo la Azione, which was basically a struggle sheet project that promoted and extended into IRL actions. Terza Posizione's board was, of course, Adinolfi, Dmitri, and Fiore, along with De Angelis, his brother, and three other guys, Enzo Piso, Roberto Nistri, Fabrizio Motironi, and Giancarlo Lugana. Under the board, there would ultimately be, by the end of 1970s, a number of territorial cells for the rebranded Terza Posizione in the regions of Rome, La Marche, Lombardy, and Sicily. And within these cells, there were subnuclei that would have just a few people. Each level had a kind of political manager accountable to the hierarchy. And then, cutting vertically through the organization, there's a kind of so-called legion, which represented the elites of the group, a presumed aristocracy, in a sense, who De Angelis describes as, quote, those who should have constituted the ruling class of an ideal state. The legion carried out both the activity of Servizio de Ordine and the cultural activity. In other words, it represented the perfect synthesis between thought and action. Terza Posizione cells sprang up in five or six neighborhoods of Rome, spanning some 300 militants, each with its own distinct character. In the heart of it all was the headquarters of the Fronte della Gioventù, the youth section of the MSE in the lower Parioli, where Terza Posizione would secretly meet with the MSE youth, fraternize, and plan out militant struggle. Undoubtedly, though, the militants of the Yor, who gravitated around former Avanguardia Nazionale member Giuseppe Dimitri, were the most intense, the most violent, and the most destructive. This area was, after all, infamous by the mid-70s as the stomping grounds of the rapist murderers who carried out the Circeo massacre. So, as these ideas and positions are developing, the autonomisti are also growing increasingly militant and in a sense displaced from the rest of the left. The famous Conference Against Repression in Bologna in September 1977 deteriorated into infighting with the autonomisti shouting down speakers from the movements who opposed the armed struggle while failing to create a national unity platform or general coordination organization. The disunity and fractiousness of the extra-parliamentary left contributed to a sense of volatility and the potential for violence. Just days after the conference in Rome, the black autonomy claimed its first murder. On September 29th, a squad of fascists left the MSC section on Viale delle Medaglie d'Oro in the district of Balduina looking for a fight. Balduina is a traditional stronghold of the fascists in Rome, and this was a militant group. So driving through the Trionfale district, 
they found a leftist on the street and fired off a few shots, hitting a young woman. She goes to the hospital, and news spreads throughout Rome. The following day, groups from the Partito di Unita Proletariata and Lotto Continua descend on the Viale delle Medaglie d'Oro section to protest. They did this with what they used to call hard leafleting, where they would set up outside of an MSC section distributing left-wing anti-fascist literature, pictures of the young party members and violent acts that they'd perpetrated in order to draw out the fascists for a fight. The fascists come out and the air is very tense. There are insults hurled and a brawl breaks out. Police intervene to keep the sides apart, gaining the insults of the left that they were on the side of the fascists. A group of leftists leave the action to distribute their flyers down the street, and a smaller group of fascists track their movements. There's a brief encounter outside of an Esso station, with the group of leftists throwing some rocks, but the sides are separated. Two of the fascists move over to the flank of the leftists. There's a crack of gunfire. Witnesses recall seeing the pair from Monteverde, Cristiano Fioravanti, and the son of a right-wing Roman magistrate, Alessandro Alibrandi, both holding guns. One of the leftists, a militant of Lotto Continua, falls to the street, struck by a bullet. Walter Rossi had returned from compulsory military service just months before and gave up his favorite sport in order to organize with Lotto Continua. Fioravanti will later tell authorities that his gun had jammed, leaving Alibrandi as the guilty party. The same gun that killed Walter Rossi had also killed Guido Bilacchioma on the campus of the University of Rome earlier in the year. Of course, the following day, all hell broke loose. Leftists raged through every MSE office and associated group's headquarters that they could find, burning, bombing, and shooting at will. The first section that was attacked was the one in the Prati district in Rome. The head of Fuan, Via Siena, Biagio Cacciola, who was a big part of the organizing black autonomy, went back to his headquarters at Via Siena, where he spent most nights. At 11, he gets an impulse to go to the Prati section at Piazza Risorgimento. This is the same one leftists had fired on during the days of March. He gets there and it's still burning. Firefighters are there and some other fascists are congregating. A couple of the old guard pick him up and, despite his protestations because he has to go to university the next day, they take him out to their restaurant. Afterwards, instead of Via Siena, he goes to his parents' house for a change and spends the night there. He's awakened at 6.30 a.m. by a phone call. It's his associate, Gigi Serafini, immediately pressing him with personal questions. Where were you born? What department are you in at university? And so forth. He gets defensive and starts insulting Serafini, thinking it's a joke or something. But Serafini responds, tell me when you were born. I want to know if it's really you, because last night at five, the comrades blew up the Fuan headquarters, and I, I saw your coat and your pajamas out of the window. It had seemed for the moment that Cacciola had been killed in the bombing, but by a twist of fate, he had not spent the night there. Others were not so lucky. In Torino, leftists wanted to attack not only the political but also the social areas where fascists hung out. So after a big protest, masked men broke away and set off on an exhibition to the Blue Angel Bar, known as a den of fascists. They threw Molotovs into the bar, setting off a massive fire that raged through the structure. One kid, a 22-year-old student who just happened to be there at the time and had no real political history, lost himself. He ran into the bathroom to flee the flames in hopes that the fire department would save him in time. When he came out, 90% of his body was covered in burns, and through a measurable pain and skin transplant, he died two days later. In this period, the woman shot by the fascists from Balduina also succumbed to her wounds. While Walter Rossi had been a member of Lotto Continua, the death of Roberto Crescenzio at the Blue Angel Bar in Turin gave everybody pause. One letter to Lotto Continua read, quote, We know little, but what we know is enough to make Roberto Crescenzio's life as dear to us as that of our dearest companions. He's Walter's age, he had Walter's same desire, and the same right to live. Some Lotto Continuisti took the opportunity to lash out against the autonomisti. 
saying that they had shown that the only thing that mattered to them was a kind of expropriation of life that could victimize anyone at any time. Others said the fault was more technical than strategic, that violence had been carried out emotionally rather than in calculated fashion had led to undesirable results. Others just seemed desperate. Armed struggle is an important fact, which I think is best used in extreme cases, with some awareness of what could result from some violent acts, one person wrote. I don't approve of it either, but honestly, after the events in Rome, I would have gladly burned everything. At Rossi's funeral, militants chant slogans against the state and the police. A struggle ensues between a group of masked autonomists and police. Gunfire breaks out, and the scene devolves again into dispersed urban warfare. Fresh attacks break out throughout Italy. The mobilizations consisting of tens of thousands of leftists elevate the crisis of violence to a new level. In body, the MSE calls for a rally led by Pino Romualdi, a member of the Old Guard. The Movimento Lavoratori per il Socialismo calls for a counteraction and are able to have the rally blocked. In response, the MSE hosts a meeting debate between Gianfranco Fini of the Youth Front and Pino Rauti on November 16th. Ten days later, on November 26th at about 8.30 p.m., a small group of young communists were walking around Corso Vittorio Emanuele when they spotted a gang of fascists. They ran up the street, but one of them, Benedetto Petrone, had an injury in his leg as a result of polio. He couldn't run. The account from his friend is heartbreaking. We ran away, I to the upper part of the road in the direction of Piazza Garibaldi, but then I turned around. I saw that Benedetto was not going for the defect in his leg. He had remained at the corner of the prefecture. One of the squadists stood in front of him, hit him with a knife for the first time down low. Then I went back, while Benedetto fell and he stabbed him again. I stretched out my arm to grab him, and the murderer wounded me in the armpit. The murderer, a man called Piccolo, had been in Ordine Nuovo and passed to the Avanguardia Nazionale, through which he had attempted to infiltrate Lotto Continua in the mid-1970s. He was arrested in West Germany, brought back to Italy, and he died by his own hand in jail several years later. The killing of Benedetto Petrone shocked Italians and escalated tensions yet again. It was normal for any leftist in Rome to look over their shoulder wherever they were, since even walking on a certain side of the street could lead to a brutal beating. One kid, named Massimo Di Pila, who had been transferred from Red Castelnuovo High School to the blackest high school in Parioli, Azzarita, was one of those who needed to be especially careful. Azzarita was a real fiefdom of the fascists where groups like Lotto Studentesca would call assemblies in the middle of the day, breaking away to hunt down leftists within the school grounds. Azzarita is located at the Piazzale delle Muse, which is the gathering point for the Pariolini fascists, and they congregate there virtually every day, after school, with other members of the Black Autonomy, to discuss the day's events, plan evening meetings, and other actions. There'd been a big brawl at Azzarita in November 7th, involving the Lotta Studentesca kids and leftists chanting, Fascists, Black Berets, your place is in the cemetery. By the stairwell, a massive fight breaks out. One Lotta Studentesca kid had his shirt ripped off. A teacher took him to the police station, and while gathering after school at the Piazzale della Muse, Cops came and they dispersed the Lotta Studentesca members. The name Massimo di Pila would have been mixed up in the imbroglio. He came out of the reddest high school in Rome. Doubtless he's making inroads organizing a militant left movement within Atarita. While things cooled off at Atarita, names like him were never forgotten. A few weeks after the incident, he was ambushed and beaten down outside of school. On December 23rd, Massimo's walking home through the Olympic Village. Two people riding a Vespa are sort of tailing him, and he gets worried. There are also two people in a mini behind that. What is this? He starts walking faster, passes a couple of friendly leftists on the street. He feels relieved that he now has company. The Vespa moves up, and instead of passing, it draws even. 
Two guns come out, and shots are fired, seven shots from a thirty-two. One of Dipila's friends later recalls to the cops that the rider on the back of the Vespa had shot Dipila almost at point-blank range, covering the license plate with his leg as the scooter drove off. Retaliation, as always, would be swift, with blame falling on a young MSC militant who denies being involved in Dipila's wounding. That man, Alessandro Pucci, would explain, quote, The truth is that I wasn't there that night. I didn't do Pila. Among other things, I knew him. He lived in the Olympic Village and was not busy enough to be a target for us. Of course, someone shot him. But in my opinion, his name came from Azzarita, the high school he attended. The place must also be kept in mind. Olympic Village, Avenue of the Soviet Union. At night, there's nobody. It's deserted. Little risk, easy to hit a target. It could have been anyone in the business. The hit against Massimo Di Pila likely emerged from Azzarita and may in fact have come out of Lotta Studentesca. The retaliations that followed in quick succession leading into 1978 gave rise to new formulations of fascist terror. The following month, Terza Posizione was officially born. Costruiamo la azione committed its first bombings shortly after. And in the midst of a new and bloody massacre, the most deadly of all, the Nuclei Armati Rivoluzionari would be born. Walter Rossi, Giorgiana Massi, Guido Bellacchioma, Francesco Lorusso, Antonino Custra, Giuseppe Ciotta, Settimo Passamonti, Benedetto Petrone. Eight people murdered over the course of the year's street clashes, five of them leftists, three of them cops. Three, Rossi, Petrone, and Bellacchioma, had been killed by fascists. Two others, Lorusso and Masi, had been killed by cops. All three police were killed during the line of duty by armed leftists. 1977 is often thought of as a low point in the 1970s, a point where things changed irreversibly towards the worse, and certainly material conditions had transformed the class struggle's traditionally fortified frontiers into far more flexible and mobile lines of struggle. As the second generation of neo-fascists adapted to these new lines, they became more violent as well, breaking away from the old guard and forging new bonds across different structures and groups designed for different things. In my own work, studying political violence, what began earlier than 1977, perhaps as early as 1975, but was certainly manifested in that year, is the clearest example of spiraling violence that I've ever examined. Perhaps one day I'll write a story showing how it all works, but for these purposes, maybe you'll see what I mean simply by listening along with this series. As always, I'm your host, Alexander Reed Ross, and this has been the Years of Lead Pod. Thanks for listening. <laughs>